and there were shepherds <laughs> keeping watch over their flocks by night. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people today. In the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Christ, our Lord. This is what Christmas is about. These last four weeks, we have been looking at the story that God has been weaving since the dawn of history, that Christmas comes as the climax of. And we've been looking at this story that informed the people like John and Mark, like, like Matthew and most notably Paul, the story that they lived in and dreamed in and dwelled in and hoped in, and the story that informed everything that they came to see. And at the heart of this story, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born, and he is the Christ. Today we are talking about what it means that Jesus was the Christ. For most people, I think Christ is Jesus' last name. I'm David Gadini. He's Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> it's a title. It's a title with deep significance, title with deep Old Testament roots, title that's filled with hope and yearning and longing, and it's central to what Christmas is about. So today we talk about what it means that Jesus is the Christ, what it has to do with God's great story, what it has to do with Christmas, and what it has to do with you. Now, this, this, this word Christ is a Greek word. The New Testament, of course, penned in the Greek language. But it's nothing more than a translation of a Hebrew word that you're probably also familiar with, pronounced Messiah. So every time you see Greek, or every time you see Christ, all you're getting is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word called Messiah. And what does Messiah mean? Anointed one. Anointed one. To be Christed or Messiahed is to mean you are anointed. And what is that about? It means, well, basically, you, 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 are, you have something smeared or poured on you with some kind of special, deeper significance. This is where in, 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 in English traditions, you ever heard of a christening, right? To be anointed in some kind of way for a special purpose. And in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of Christs, all kinds of messiahs. We think of it as singular, don't we? But in the Old Testament, they were all over the place. All kinds of things were, were, were anointed or smeared or, or had something poured upon it for God's plan and purpose. 
And what they would do is they would make a special recipe. They would take an oil, anointed with what? Well, it was an oil, but not just an oil, a perfumed oil, a seasoned oil, a bed and bath and body work kind of oil uh, of one kind or another that would be used to pour over someone's head. Now, I actually found the recipe for anointing oil in the Bible. And here it is if you guys are, are looking to bake or something these next few days. I, I, I thought we could just maybe look at this a little bit and get a feel. It starts with, well, let's get our period-appropriate anointing horn there. And it starts with myrrh. Now, myrrh is nothing but the resin of a, of a tree, like pine sap, you know what I mean? But in the ancient world, it was a, a tree, not local to Israel. It was a tree um, whose resin was hard to get. It was a tree that uh, was valuable. And its resin would come off, and you would burn it, and it would smoke. Now, does that look about 500 shekels to you? This is how I cook. Next, it says we need fragrant cinnamon. Mm. About 250. Tell me when. That's good. All right. It also says 250 shekels of fragrant cane. Um, so. And I got no clue what cassia is, all right? All right? And, and it's all topped off with a hin of olive oil. So at the end of the day, let's see, I don't really have hin marks on this, but. Does it look, does it look like a hin to you? And what you would do if you were to be a Christ or a Messiah, Christed or Messiah, is the priests would make this special blend and they would pour it all over the thing that they were Christing. Are, are you with me? So I thought it would be interesting to take this a step further and actually see what this would look like and what the significance of it just might be. I've got a victim set up here today. Right there, baby. All right? And so when something was to be messiahed or Christed, what they would do is they would take their special olive oil, cinnamon, cane, cassia, um, whatever nonsense this is kind of blend, and the priest in a moment of, of just like anticipation and braided breath would come and he would anoint, he would anoint Now, don't go anywhere. And it would coat you, and it would cover you, and it's fragrant. It's filled with myrrh and cinnamon. You would smell good. Believe me, the Chaffees are glad for this moment here today. And in a world where there wasn't shampoo or conditioner, in a Middle Eastern climate where there isn't face creams and body creams, 
it would be soothing and it would be comforting and it would give a brightness and a sheen. There's actually, and I should have showed a picture, these Egyptian friezes of, of, of nobility at parties. You ever see these pictures today of like people wearing the party hats? And what they're all wearing in these Egyptian pictures from the time of David and even before is hunks of lard on their heads that would melt in the sun because to them it was something refreshing and beautiful and good. What do you think is in the lotion that you put on your face and in your hair every day? And it was valuable and it was significant and it was wealthy, and it was opulent. And what you would do is when you would see this person, you would still see them, but you would see this thing that covers them. They are covered for a purpose. They take on a new light, a new hue, a new shade. Are, are, are you with me? <laughs> Here you go, man. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else who feels left out, come talk to me and let me just get this out of the way, all right? Now, <laughs> hugging family, that's what I like to see. That is the Christmas spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, all kinds of things would be anointed, all right? Let me just show you a few. Moses is commanded to anoint, or translate it into Hebrew, would you? Messiah, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and all its articles. He's called to consecrate them so that they will be most holy. Anoint them or Messiah them to set them apart as something holy. You see Exodus go on, where, where Moses is commanded by God, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. And so we see that priests are anointed, our messiahs, are set apart for God's purpose and plan. It goes on on occasion, you see the prophets, people considered to be the very voice of God among the people, called his Christs, his messiahs. But even at times, the strangest people will be called Messiah. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to his Messiah, to Cyrus. You know who Cyrus is? Pagan king of Persia. As far from Yahweh as could be imagined. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. What title? Christ, Messiah, even though you do not acknowledge me. And yet most, whoa, and yet most notable among all of these messiahs was the king. I think the most significant story comes with Israel's most famous king, a king named David, around the time of 1000 BC. Not Israel's first king, mind you, but Israel's favorite king. And deep within the story, it talks about how the prophet, the anointed one of God, comes to anoint 
David. This is what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel the prophet, how long will you mourn for Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And as you read the story, you see that Jesse has son after son after son, and Samuel doesn't know which it is. And like most in our world today, he starts with the brightest and the best, the oldest and the strongest, those who have proven themselves, those who to their eye look like he should be king. And God says, that's not the one. And he goes to the second, and God says, that's not the one. And he goes to the third, and it starts to count down until it comes to a young boy, a shepherd boy. A shepherd boy spending his days watching the, the, the sheep and the goats in the field, probably because no one else wanted what was considered woman's work in the day. And God says to Samuel, that is your king. And Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed David. He messiahed David, Christed or christened David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Because God has a way of choosing the lowliest among us, the most humble among us, those that seem to be powerless among us to show his glory and accomplish great things. And what can be argued as one of the most significant passages in all of the Old Testament and one of the most significant passages for understanding not only the Christmas story, but what New Testament is about. God comes to David after establishing him as king, and he says this, your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And from that time, this Davidic promise, this Davidic line, this, this, this hope and promise that a Messiah of David would come and reign over Israel and more than Israel, the world forever pervaded the Jewish psyche. It got into their pores and into their bones. It, it, it shadowed and colored everything. It became the culmination of so many things because what this Messiah would be, this king would be, is nothing short than the representative of Israel himself to accomplish all that Israel has been meant to do in this world. Throughout these past few weeks, we've been looking at these stories, these stories of the Old Testament that underpin what the Christmas story is about. We started with creation. Imagine this outer sphere is the sum total of God's story. Nothing short but the creation story itself, that God made this world in which we live, and when God made it, he made it good. God loves his world. And yet God's creation has become corrupted. 
destroyed and vandalized and marred. It is, it is been wrenched out of his control, if I can be so far to say, and become something that God had never intended it to be. At the pinnacle of God's creation or within God's creation is humanity. In the story of humanity, how God takes these, these creatures that he calls male and female and above all other things in creation, invests them with his image and with his likeness. You are going to be like me. And he gives them the mandate. Rule. Take my image, my glory, my presence to the four corners of the circle. <laughs> Spread it and rule in my stead. Bring my justice and mercy, my grace and my goodness. And humanity fails. So God comes tighter. And out of all humanity, he selects one people group, Israel, to do and accomplish what humanity did not. To bring his presence to the edge of the circle, to bring about nothing short but the rescue and redemption of creation itself. And, and Israel failed. Humanity failed. Israel failed. We fail. Don't we? So what God does in the Old Testament is he starts to select messiahs, Christs, individuals set apart for specific purposes, most namely to be representatives for Israel itself, who are representatives for humanity themselves, who are given the mandate to save the world. And like Israel and humanity before it, the Messiahs fail. God sets them apart and they fail. God sets them apart and they do evil. God sets them apart and they fall short. But God's word doesn't fail. Because each time God tightens the circle, it is never at the expense of the greater promise that he's given. Because when God gives his word, even if they fail, he keeps it. And a hope began to germinate from the time of David on. Maybe, just maybe, a representative will come, a messiah. A messiah to trump all messiahs. A messiah to stand in our presence. A messiah to stand in our place. A messiah to do that which we have failed to do. And from the time of David on, Israel got drunk on this. I, I think of this prophet Isaiah talking and dreaming and hoping and yearning about what this might be, about who this from the line of David might be. And he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. 
Now, I hear shoot. I go to shoots and ladders. I don't know why. But you got to think like of a cut-down tree, a once mighty, majestic tree that stood in glory that has been cut down to the stump, as dead as dead can be. But a shoot will come up from the stump. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. You ever do a family tree? Think of what a branch looks like in a family tree. One from his line will come and bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Isaiah says. A spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and of power, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And and it says he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Isaiah writes, dreaming about this day, he says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness to God. A sash upon his waist. He dreams what the day will be. When the lion will lie down with the lamb. When the leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. Because deep within the heart of Israel's hope is that God would send one from the line of David to be king, to be anointed, to be set apart to do what Israel in humanity could never do. So, when the angel comes to those shepherds that night and the glory of the Lord is shining around them and he says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, our Lord. He is saying nothing less than God has come to fulfill all that he has been promising and leading to since the dawn of creation itself. That in that major, one, a branch of the line of David has been born, set apart by God to bring the redemption and restoration of creation. That Israel or humanity, you or I, could never bring, can never live up to. And it's this story 
that the angel brings. This is Christmas. It is nothing short than the birth of the long-awaited king. Now Paul will write, if anyone confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, a king like no other king, he will be saved. What it means to be a part of that kingdom and to take the Christmas story and make it your story is to give your allegiance to that king. And that's my hope for you this season. That you see the one that God has anointed and that God has set apart. And that you would be one, as the scriptures say, before whom every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Please rise. I invite you to confess Jesus as your Lord here today. To pay your homage and allegiance to him as your king. To surrender your will to his. Your life to his. Your way to his. to trust him as your Messiah and obey him as your Lord. Let's pray. And if you'd pray this with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. I love what the Apostle Paul writes. This one who saw himself as nothing short but a messenger of a king bringing a royal proclamation of good news. He says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in God's anointed one. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in his Christ. And check that out. In Christ, he also anoints you. 
in Christ, you stand here as messiahs today. You are Jesus' little messiahs set apart as well by God to carry out his purposes and his plan to the redemption and restoration of creation. His spirit is with you. It's his promise to you. It guarantees that God is faithful. His word is true. God will bring what he has promised. Embrace that in him today. Embrace that in him. And bring it forward. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup after supper and he had given thanks. He gave it to them and said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. It's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Come, do this in remembrance of me. Welcome to the table of the king.